Welcome to Tilting at Windmills with your host, Mike Donahue. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tilting at Windmills with Mike Donahue. Today, I'm fortunately joined by Mitsu Hideshi, who is a longtime application developer, artist, philosopher, and I don't know what. Are there other things? I'm sure there's a bunch of other. He's a modern day, modern day Renaissance man. I think I was going to say Bon Vivant, but I really don't think that's that's correct. <laughs> no, I don't think Bon Vivant really captures it. Mitsu, how are you today? Thank you for joining us. I'm I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Of course, um, I came across your internet presence while you were doing a. It was either a TikTok or a combination of. TikTok and and Twitter, where you're. This was either the day after or the day before. Elon started waxing on about RPC calls within the, <laughs> right. the Twitter infrastructure, and you're like, "Well, that's really not how things work." And so, I think just because it's sort of topical, I thought it would be fun to talk a bit about Twitter and Elon Musk and. Like if you really want to get into backend large scale computational frameworks, we can. I just don't know how exciting that would be for for most of the audience. So the big question I have for you right out of the gate is: Elon Musk a Westworld bot, <laughs> or has he has he been re, has he been replaced? He, ex- exactly. You know he 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 has a, a unusual figure, right? I mean, as we all know. Uh, I know quite a few people who know him personally. I, I don't know him personally. So, you know, I do want to be politic here because I don't think I don't think either of the caricatures of him are correct. So a lot of people are saying, well, he's he's just a rich kid and he's a complete fraud. He's never done anything. It's just uh, luck or it's just his, you know, inheritance or something. I don't agree with that. But at the same time, I do agree with most of the people who, who think that his tenure at Twitter has not been going smoothly, to say the least. So, you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of my friends, some of whom do know him. And what does he bring to the table? And is he really bringing value? And I, I do think that he must have some skills, right? And I, I it's not just because his companies are worth a lot of money, but in my opinion, and I've been kind of in a, at the managerial level at a lot of tech companies for many years, it is not easy to even be CEO, even if you're not directly doing a lot of the stuff that your company is doing, just e- even running it as a, um, as a CEO and making decisions. And he, he clearly is not shy about making decisions. So it's not as though he's just a figurehead and leaves it all to other people. I don't think that's easy. I don't think it's easy to do that. I don't think it's easy to hire people and to generate enthusiasm. And you can see that, you know, quite a few of his uh, people who work for him are are very loyal to him and and very enthusiastic about him. But at the same time, you know, I've, I've always observed that he has a lot of peculiarities and one of them being that he tends he, he you know he frequently will say things about or make predictions which which are not which don't turn out to be the case and he they're overly optimistic so he he'll say you know 
I mean, famously, he he kept predicting Tesla would deliver so many cars by this date, and those he never met those targets. Even now, you can see if you look at initial quality surveys of vehicles, Teslas have a lot of problems. I mean, they tend to have a lot of build quality issues and reliability issues, and that to me is just reflective of his tendency to kind of underestimate the difficulty to make things consistently. And that to me is, is one of his issues, but at the same time, he's very driven as, as some of his other friends have told me, you know, he's extremely driven and he's just, he will stick with something and really push it through. And that is perhaps a, you could say that that's that's a largely positive quality for someone like him, and and the fact that he underestimates difficulties may be why he tries to do things that are very, other people might not try because he just thinks, well, I can do this, you know. Yeah, I think I think too in his favor. Uh, I think as you were mentioning, in this sort of, you would know much more than I, um, having dealt in sort of the VC world, but the number of tech CEOs that were able to start but not able to scale. And were replaced by investors, you know, fairly just sort of at the nascent stages. I'm, I'm sure it's countless. So, yeah, his ability to, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm worried that he's a bit of a poster boy for Dunning Kruger. And whereas his success in other areas just makes him feel like no matter what, he's going to be good at. Yeah, I think that, that that's a potential explanation for what's happening at Twitter. I mean, I also think, you know, there, the, the problem is it's, it's kind of hard to tell. Like, you know, I haven't, I haven't actually gone into depth with my friends, you know, who knew him. And it's really because the topic is not really super interesting to us, even though it's fascinating to the world. Um, so we, we, don't, we don't talk at length about Elon or whatever. But, you know, there have been these, these reports that at his other companies, there, there emerges a team of, managers who who try to manage him you know they're managing up basically and i don't know if this is true or not if or you know i haven't investigated these reports right but i do believe that and i've seen this many times in my life right and you can see it in the real world that a lot of talented people actually are are helped and i I mean to tiktok about this they're actually helped by people who are pushing back on them and they're constraining them so earlier on in his career i think elon he had these visions and some of them are very inspirational he got got the companies going but i i think he was probably he probably had less complete confidence you know that he could just do whatever he wanted and i think some of his some of the people around him would push back at some of his more extreme tendencies and trying to manage it so that the company could be successful. So I think it's a combination of him being actually having some vision and some, and obviously drive and not being an idiot like people think he is in some areas. But, uh, but at the same time, you know, having some impulses that do need to be moderated and by people around him. And he's, and I think that's part of his success too. And I think, it's it's not just him by himself. It's him and and all the people around him, and that's enabled. And that's my theory about how he's able to pull off SpaceX and Tesla is some sort of group effort. And we don't really hear a lot about you know the other people around him and what are they doing. They, occasionally, you'll read about it, but 
there isn't a lot of coverage of that. But at Twitter, I, I, f- I feel like he's gotten to the point now where his ego, as you were saying, is it's, it's inflated to a certain point where he just thinks the thing that would have been even better is if those people weren't there telling me not to do something and I could just do whatever I want. You know, and that seems to be where he is at Twitter right now. And that I don't think is actually working in his favor. So, so if we, we look at it, like, because his responsibilities span the game. So Twitter, like there's a managerial aspect just in terms of company operations. And then there's sort of the technical side of things. And he's, it feels like he's delved pretty deeply into both, you know, in, t- in terms of prioritizing development lines, you know, et, et cetera. And, and it feels like he's made missteps along both of those sort of channels. I think particularly in terms of the, the platform itself and how it works, because, you know, 99% of America thinks that Twitter's just a web page. You know, you type something you think and you hit send and a few seconds later it pops up, right? I don't know that, you know, there might be hundreds, thousands of interconnected parts and the most common refrain I've heard over the last few weeks, which is just driving me nuts, is that, well, you know, the web page is still up. If I post something, it still posts, right? So how, what were they doing with all those 7,500 people? And I think anybody who, who has worked in the industry probably understands that it's really not that simple. But, but can you do like an explain like I'm five about why that is the whole thought that it's it it is kind of simple isn't accurate well you you can actually already see it so you know you have to dig a little bit because most people are just like going to the page and posting something and then looking at their feed but if you look at for example the new there there's like a breaking news feature where it sort of tries to show you news stories that it wants to to float and almost all of them right now are are crypto scams right <laughs> like it's it's an entire feature that Maybe it's not used that often, so a lot of people don't notice it, but it's completely taken over by crypto scams. And I mean, at least that was the case a few days ago when I checked. Um, and I, I actually ironically saw someone talking about this on Twitter, which is why I, I went to take a look at it, and also on Mastodon, and I, I, I've spent time on there now. But um, so there's, there's major functionality that's not working at all, or hardly at all. And it's all around these other systems that actually are very labor intensive as well as engineering intensive. You need to have a lot of people, of course, doing content moderation and getting rid of the of the crypto scans. It's somewhat ironic that one of the things that Elon thought said he was going to do was get rid of these bots, but he hasn't been he hasn't done that. The problem, for example, but getting rid of bots, that's another example, right? So that's related to this crypto scam thing. That's not easy for obvious reasons. I mean, maybe it's not obvious, but it's hard to detect. There, there are entire startups dedicated to trying to figure out what things are bots. Um, and the bots are getting more and more sophisticated. So it's, it's an arms race, right? They're becoming harder to detect. And of course, you can see with ChatGPT coming out, everyone's talking about it. Although I'm not sure exactly why now is the time, because if you looked at GPT's uh, earlier versions, GPT-3 and, and uh, various other transformer-based AI, it's been astounding for a couple of years, for years at this point. For those of you who don't know, um, ChatGPT is, is a, it's just, it's super hot 
on the wire right now. It's it's a site where you can go and through you can ask it a question, um, you can ask it to code something for you in you know almost any programming language, and at least in the results or the videos and the Twitter examples that have been posted, it's rather amazing, really rather amazing. That that's a whole other topic which we should yeah. probably touch <laughs> on, which I think is quite fascinating. But yeah, you can you can ask it to write things too. You can ask it to write essays or have a conversation, and it sounds very human in a mind-boggling way. Although the the earlier versions have, were also like that, so it's it's not it's not brand new. The Chat GPT does some new things, uh, but the technology has been astounding for a while. I th- I think it's in part also because we're seeing a little bit of a confluence more. I think of AI, um, especially like all the AI art controversies that have been going on. So I think people are starting to realize it's it's not just a, the concept of AI. It, it's not so conceptual anymore. There's now, people can now see tangible results from AI components. That's right. And, and they, but it's been, it's been trending this way for a few years. And I, I've, I've been very impressed. Although when I was younger, I, I did a lot of stuff with neural networks because I was convinced that it was going to be, this is a total tangent, but in the early days of AI, there was a, a lot of debate between algorithmic AI and, and what people called connectionists back then, uh, which is more neural network designs. And the algorithmic AI people were driven by uh, Marvin Minsky at MIT and, uh, and all of the related people. And, and earlier in the early years, that was the bulk of what people called AI. Uh, but it never really reached the promise. Uh, it never, you know, they tried expert systems, all these rule-based systems, and they just didn't work that well. Uh, they, they worked for very narrow domains, but they could not build anything that was remotely, you know, human-like, much less do much of anything else, really. Uh, so AI progress was very slow, but I, but I thought even back then when I was younger uh, that uh, th- that those guys were going the wrong way and that it was going to be neural networks. Um, and and so now, of course, we we're starting to see that uh, really come to fruition, even a bit earlier than I thought. So it, and it's been it's really impressive, and there's a whole range of topics around there. But to get back to the original topic, now that you can build these things, it's even harder to detect bots, right? Because the, the text it's generating is virtually indistinguishable from what a human being might type or write. And then you, so you have to use other things. And it's very hard to detect these things. But before, you know, so even before Twitter's ability to detect bots was not great, but like he's decimated a lot of the engineering team. And a lot of it was reliant as well on human moderation, which um, which is now also gone or largely gone. Uh, there, there's there are some people left. I, I won't say it's gone, but or I shouldn't say it's gone, but it, it's uh, it's very much less than it was. And so these kinds of things start to have an impact, but it's going to take longer to, to see. And then, of course, there are many other aspects on the engineering side that most people don't think about, which are really what happens with these large systems is that they can kind of go on momentum for a while. But then when something goes wrong, you have to have people there to detect it. You have to have ways of monitoring it. You have to have teams of people 
who can rapid respond to these things. So I'm not sure. I, I do know that a lot of those engineers have left. In some cases, I've heard, I've read that, you know, almost all the some of these teams are gone. But they may have enough people there to kind of keep it going, eking along. I don't know, you know, for sure. But it's not simple because there's so many, so many, it has so much volume of usage. And when things go wrong, it's always unexpected by definition. It's like something, somebody makes a change. For example, they're trying to do software development, right? You make a change that causes some unexpected cascade of things to happen and figuring out what's going wrong and why and preventing it from destroying the system is, takes a lot of work, a lot of people. So I'm not necessarily saying that he's wrong that, you know, I, I actually agreed that they probably had too many employees, right? But the way that he's fired them is, is uh, kind of chaotic. And I'm not sure that, you know, so th there's a lot to discuss there. But yeah, Twitter is not a simple, obvious thing. There's so many elements to it that, that require a lot of people. I'm trying to find the analogy, and I still don't have the proper analogy, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of coming around to it. It's sort of like a, a car engine. So it's a car engine that has a thousand parts that all sort of work together to generate energy for the drivetrain or whatever. I have no idea how cars work. But it's a, it's a, and it has all these moving parts and and not only do you have to just sort of keep the engine running at a baseline, but you're you're trying only constantly trying to either introduce new and better parts to the engine as well as optimize other parts. So if you have a you know a gear that weighs twenty ounces and you you think you have a way of making it ten ounces that'll help the overall weight or whatever of the car. And you're trying to introduce that gear sort of while the car is running, but in a way that it doesn't, that change in that gear doesn't impact any of the other 500 gears that that one part is connected to. And not only do you have to deal with internal components that are just native to you and, and the engine that your company is building, but you're also interfacing probably with how many other thousands of, probably not on that tier, but there's got to be uh, dozens of sort of high-level interactions with other software companies that that interact on a on a massive scale, and you have to make sure, like let's say they want a feature added, or or they want to change some part of how they interact with your system, and so then you have to re react to that, and it, it just gets very complex very quickly. That's absolutely correct, and and also the systems aren't necessarily that well documented, unfortunately. <laughs> No matter how long I've been in the industry, that, that's never been a priority, um, even though it's in theory a priority, but it, in practice, it doesn't necessarily happen. So it, a, lot of, a lot of knowledge is, is carried in the brains of the people who work there, which is normally okay because you, you don't have massive turnover, right? You, you can uh, train new people on the system and so on, but, but if you suddenly lose... 95% of a team, it, it may be difficult to preserve that institutional memory. You mean and, it's not all perfectly commented out? <laughs> right. I mean, I, I actually don't uh, believe in documentation that much myself. I, I believe in very clearly written code, but uh, that is not the way most code is written, right? A lot of code is just not clearly written or is poorly structured and so on. So uh, it is 
it will work until it breaks, right? Like the, the little pieces start to break on the, uh, in, in bits and bits. And then the question is, who's going to be there to figure it out? And, and the, the problem, it gets exponentially harder when, if it might have taken like a few hours to figure out what's wrong, and then it, now it takes a week to figure it out because you have to like carefully go through all this code that's poorly documented and, and not well-structured, then it, it gets more and more tricky. So, you know, I, I, there, these are just some of the problems, right? I'm not, I'm not sure that Twitter is going to break. Like some people are predicting like it's absolutely going to fall apart. They still do have some engineers there. So presumably they can figure out a lot of problems, but it is, it is definitely problematic. I, I see more the bigger problem being that Elon wants to do this massive new development project. Uh, he wants to build a new Twitter and a super app, as he calls it. But I think he's he's turned off a lot of of the top engineers who who probably don't want to work for him, and uh, it's going to be hard. Not impossible, but definitely he's made the problem exponentially harder because of the way he's been managing it up till now. Can I go off on a tangent just just for a little bit? One of my longtime friends uh, worked at Netflix where he was partially in charge of coding the uh, recommendation engine back when Netflix had their, we think this is three and a half stars or however, however they did it. And he was heavily involved. It was the first time I ever heard the words, you know, machine learning neural networks. Um, and his whole effort was really around how do we make high percentile accurate recommendations on a smaller data set? And I didn't understand him. He was, he's so much, I don't think I'm dumb, but he made me look like I'm bashing two stones together. But I think, I think we're, what we're coming around to is this concept of a leap between machine learning slash neural networks and quote-unquote true AI or higher-level AI in terms of Turing test or self-consciousness? Or do you know, do you know where I'm trying to get to? Yeah. I'm, I'm not verbalizing it well. Yeah, th this is a, a deep topic, and it's something that's been fascinating the AI world forever. So one of the things I did when I was a kid, I, I was in eighth grade and uh, actually I was, I started uh, the first project I did was in seventh grade. So in seventh grade, I, w I wanted to do a project on AI. <laughs> I had a little home computer uh, I could write in basic. So I went to the UCLA uh, math library because uh, a friend of the family, you know, let me into the stacks. Uh, I wasn't really supposed to go in there. I don't think, but she let me in and I, and I checked out some books and um, I checked out the original Perceptron's paper and I checked, which is the, the first neural network kind of design that uh, by Rosenblatt. I checked out uh, What Computers Can't Do, which was a book by a philosopher talking about how he thought AI was going to be impossible. And I wrote a, uh, I ended up making a, a science fair project about it was a time series predictor using um, evolutionary algorithm on finite state machines and 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 mitsu just to just to sort of level set the conversation mine was a volcano 
Yeah, the volcanoes are cool, though. <laughs> they, I, just, I just want to make sure you know what, where you have to gauge your uh, discussion level. So anyway, I, you know, I mean, I, I, the point is that I, I've been interested in this. And at the time, I already thought, you know, the Rosenblatt's um, thing was interesting, although it was very limited. And although my project was not in, in I didn't do a, a Perceptron's project. Even, even though I was a, a precocious uh, seventh grader, I, I wasn't really quite ready for that. But I, I did do this other thing. So I've been thinking about this and, and the question of, in fact, it's somewhat related to my philosophy interest too, is uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about AI and how it relates to consciousness and, and so on. So it's, it's a topic that has been discussed. So obviously the Turing test is supposed to be a point at which we can decide that something is general AI, but we, you know, ChatGPT, I think already can pass it, right? So, and still people don't think it's really conscious. So the Turing test is probably not obsolete at this point because we, we can pass it now. We already have the technology. So then the question is, what is going on here? I do think that what, this is another place where I'm disagreeing with both sides. One side says some people are kind of getting overly enthusiastic and they say, you know, these things are already sentient or something. And then others say, no, 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 they're just, they're just text predictors, right? And they really don't know what they're doing. They're just mindless. Uh, and that is, I would say those camps are both incorrect. I don't think that they are sentient yet, but I don't think they're that far away from potentially being sentient. Now, the reason I don't agree with the idea that they're just, quote-unquote, text predictors is that in order to get to the point where you can converse with another person, as they're reading these texts, you know, in, order, in the reading, as they're being trained on human texts, in order to encode it, like, if it, it's kind of hard to explain, but if you think about the way a neural network works, it's, it's tr it has to encode things relatively efficiently. So even though the neural networks have millions and millions of, of parameters, right, they still, that's still not enough to like literally store everything. And if, if they did literally store all the training data, it would not, it wouldn't work at all. Like what they have to do is they have to abstract out patterns. So at the lower level of the networks, they're, they're, they're just noticing like very low level features. Like for example, if you're doing a visual system, in a neural network, the, the lower levels of the network will be like detecting edges and detecting, you know, very, very like movement left to right or right to left or in certain directions. And then as you go up, they, they're detecting higher and higher level abstractions like shapes and so on. With these text predictors, so, so called, they have to be encoding higher and higher level abstractions as well. And so it's obvious to me, and I think even understanding how the technology works to some extent. I don't think anyone fully understands it because it's, it's a lot of it is magic kind of hidden inside the, the math, which you, you can't tease out exactly what it's doing, right? But to the extent that you can understand it, I believe that that still leads to the conclusion that it must be forming these, these conceptual abstractions at higher and higher levels, even when it's only text. I think you can infer things even about the quote unquote world because the texts were generated by people who live in the world. So they're referring to 
structures in the world, real world. So I don't think, so some people say, well, they're not really trained on, they don't know how to correspond these things with the real world. I don't, I don't think that's a, actually a, a valid objection because you can infer, it's sort of like Plato's cave. You can infer things. In some sense, we as humans are growing up at, you know, we, we're babies and we grow up and we are just getting signals from the world. Like we're not directly accessing the real world. It's all indirect, right? And you can you start to infer structures from the input that you're getting. And if the input is coming from the world, which is true of text, I believe that these things are generating conceptual models of the world in order to function. Otherwise, you wouldn't be like, you know, you can have a conversation with these things. And like, for example, I did some programming examples and I would just ask it to do things and it made mistakes. And then I would just explain this is the mistake you made, you know, you forgot to consider blah, 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 you know, and then it fixed it, right? So there's no way that that came from just, oh, I saw an example of someone explaining this exact problem. And then, you know, it's, it's mapping whatever I'm saying as an explanation, quote unquote, into a corrected version, which has to go through what I think of as conceptual coding. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's aware, sentient. That's a different thing. But it's a, it's a response to stimuli. Right. It is responding to the world. So in that sense, it is, um, it is responsive. What I think sentience is, and this is another, I have reasons for thinking this. I can't really explain them all. But I think sentience involves uh, um, self-aware loops. In other words, the loop, the information is coding back on, for example, if input comes in, it's updating state, which it then can feed back into itself for further analysis. So it's, it's like, when you think about what does it feel like to see, in my opinion, the act of seeing is being monitored by kind of a feedback loop, almost like a, just like even in, to go back to Twitter, like all these systems like Twitter have a lot of self-monitoring systems in order to detect when things are starting to go wrong which is then when engineers come in and try to fix it. I think the same thing is happening with conscious beings, like, you know, even like animals or mice or something, they are feeding back things about how they're functioning to themselves so that they can refer to, oh yeah, just this, an hour ago, I was seeing this beautiful sunset and it made me feel X, Y, Z. You have a, you have a memory of that, right? And you can even call up this sort of, sense of what it is like to see something. I don't think that that is some sort of magical thing. People call it qualia in, in philosophy. And a lot of people think it's some sort of mystical thing and it's impossible to explain. I, I personally think qualia are just feedback loops, memories of feedback loops where we're recording things about our operation. But that isn't the way, like most of these, like ChatGPT has some of that because it, it, it does have, does keep track of the conversation that you've had and keeps track of that information. So in some sense, there's a little bit of feedback, but it's not a, it's not a continuous ongoing thing where there's constant functioning of it, which is what I think you would need to get to what we would call sentience and, you know, like the way human beings are sentient. So drawing that out, super far then are you are you positively inclined to think that at some point you know our consciousness could be placed into 
a compute environment? I don't really think, I mean, I'll put it another way. I, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right? What I mean by that is I think that what is inevitably, in my opinion, I've had, I have debates with some of my friends who are very brilliant people and who disagree with me. But I don't think that computer awareness is eventually going to be that different from human awareness in the sense that I think we will be able to build systems that can be said to be sentient in some sense or some, some, somehow analogous to the way animals or, or people are. But um, I don't really understand why people are so obsessed with my consciousness will go into computer. I mean, I can kind of understand because we, we care so much about our, our living forever or something. Yeah, <laughs> but, it's Im- it's, it would be immortality, right? Right. I, I, I understand why. Unless someone way, buys the company that's hosting your consciousness and lays off half the workers. But, but if I were to duplicate myself, let's say right now, just my entire quantum state, everything, right? If that were possible, it isn't possible. But let's say I duplicated myself, and then that person lives on. Is that me? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think it is a continuation of the pattern that is me. But I don't really think of it as like my consciousness is now in that thing that in this other person who's now my twin or something. It's, it's just a, another. It's a, it's a copy, not a move. It's a copy, right? And. One thing that might happen, and just to get into sort of science fiction-y, you know, I, I think that what might happen is we may get to the point where we start to augment ourselves with cybernetic implant type of things, where you you are interacting, your brain is is kind of interacting with an artificial system, and eventually you move stuff so that more and more of it is is happening in the artificial system and less is happening in the biological system, and eventually the biological system could shut off. And that might be kind of like a semi-move <laughs> sort of thing. But, you know, to me, what's going to happen is likely, if this all plays out the way I imagine, is that uh, AI will more or less replace us. <laughs> and we may continue on, like human, the human species may continue on, but um, I'm not sure that the AIs would destroy us because I, I don't know if they care about us being around. You know, they, they, it's just like we don't kill all the animals, right? Why would we do that? You know, so we might, they might just continue on in their own world unless we became a threat to them or something, I suppose. And I think this gets into the sort of the next section I was going to go into, but like, are you generally optimistic then about the future? I don't know if I would say, call it optimistic. I would just say that I think AI... My opinion is, and again, I could be wrong, but my opinion is that I just think of AI as also life. It's life that we kind of created, but it's going to continue on. It may be symbiotic with us so that we're kind of, we kind of become part of that network, but then the the intelligence will go on and evolve in its own way. And I, I don't want it to be just copies of humans that lived in the 21st century, you know? I mean, it could be that, but like, why would that be the great thing? Like, to me, it would just be other things that just continue on. I mean, part of this is because of my my Buddhist <laughs> my Buddhist inclinations, I suppose. Well, we should, yeah, we should talk about that because it's it's really interesting to me to 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 come across people that I think are I don't know the the whole left brain right brain trope that I don't even remember which side is which. But you, you went to Harvard for physics, Harvard. 
I'm going to the extension school and I love it. It's it's one of the best things I've ever done. I would highly recommend it to anybody who's out there. Plus you get to wear Harvard gear, which I would never wear outside. Do you, have you ever worn a Harvard hoodie like outside? No, no. Yeah. I don't think people who actually went to the <laughs> undergrad school, at least. I, I do know people who went to like law school or business school like to wear Harvard stuff. Uh, I, I can't think of a single classmate of mine who ever wears anything with Harvard on it. You, you had that, what most people, and, and you know, we've been just, just been talking on and on about, you know, coding and, and physics and AI and computer, which most people would just heavily throw over into that sort of logical binary sort of side of things. But you also have this Bronx art space and this whole artistic side that seems to be pretty prevalent. And And how, I guess, how do those two things... And I guess there's some discussion there about how coding potentially is the marriage of art and science. I think that's been hammered a bit, but how does how does that? I don't know. I because I, I can't I can't even figure out one side of my brain. Like how how does that sort of blend work for you? And was that natural, or did you have to did you have to work at it? Or you know, it's always been my personality. I mean, my dad's an artist, so he's he's actually a fine artist. He's a painter that's what they call fine arts in other words he's not a commercial artist he used to teach painting and other things at art schools and in um, liberal arts colleges and so i grew up in the art world like all all of my childhood memories like going to art shows and art schools and wandering around chenard art institute where my dad taught and um which is now called cal arts so that's always been part of me. But my uncle was a physicist at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Uh, so we kind of have, I think my family has kind of both tendencies. So I was always very good at math and physics and things like that. But I have been extremely interested in in art and creative areas and intuitive pursuits, non-analytical, I, I guess you could call it. And a lot of my meditation practice has been very much not, focused on analysis. But to me, these are not, they, they are different modes of thinking, I suppose. But but I don't see the world, like, I, I think one of the things that's kind of strange to me, I mean, I grew up in, in a Japanese household. I mean, my parents are Japanese, but also in the US, right? And Western culture, even though I grew up here, still seems a bit foreign, you know, a bit odd to me, although I grew up here. In, um, in what way? Well, for example, there's a lot of, I think the Western tendency is to like to divide things into binaries more than is the case in, in, at least in the Asian culture I'm familiar with. Yeah, for example, there are New Agers, right, who are very (laughs) anti-science. One of the ironies of the pandemic was that a lot of these New Age people started getting rabidly anti-vaccine, anti-vax, anti, you know, masks, you know, and they only wanted, they only believed in like natural remedies. No, I've, I'm very much a believer that there are many, many natural remedies which are effective. And I've participated in them. And I know some people who, who are in both worlds, but very small fraction. There's, people tend to divide into these camps, you know, like, I'm pro-natural, whatever, and therefore vaccines are bad, which is kind of strange, you know, to me. Like, I don't see why 
the world the world just isn't to me divided that way but if you, if you go to japan or korea or my, my wife's korean so i've spent some time there and i've lived there actually during the pandemic because they were handling it very well and um there isn't this you know you you can go to korea for example or japan and you'll find doctors who are western style and you also have doctors who do eastern medicine and they, they they're not seen as like one are quacks and the other are real or something they're not in opposition like there's mutual respect and there isn't this sense of like spiritual stuff is over in this world and the material you know i think it comes down to like the cartesian divide where where people decided that mind and body are two different worlds and there's a spiritual life and a material life and they're completely independent like i don't see that at all to me it's just different ways of looking at one world. So my analytical, you know, mind is looking at the world. And part of the reason I was interested in neural networks is because neural networks are also not like executing rules, like do this rule, then this rule, then this rule. It's actually, they're actually doing things that are much more fuzzy. You know, they're kind of like, they, like if you look at the mistakes a neural network will make, they're very similar to the way humans make mistakes. So if it, it makes a coding error, you have to say, oh, you you just missed this conceptual problem or you missed it. It's not a rule thing. It's much more fuzzy and analog. It's not a rule thing, but there's still a human determining the wind condition. Right. That's true. But, but let, well, you know, you can take Dali, you know, or Midjourney or whatever, and, and these things are generating images. And the images are often very fanciful and kind of creative, right, in some way. I mean, they're obviously based on human-created Im images, but nevertheless, they're doing things that are novel in a lot of, in, at least in the sense that we would, I think I think a lot of people will call a lot of what they do somewhat novel, but at the same time, derivative. You know, it's kind of hard to... But that humans also do the same thing. Like, where everything that humans make is also derivative to some extent. And it's I think it's kind of analogous. So what these that's partly why i was attracted to neural networks because it because they are so fuzzy and they are and i think that that is the way you can you're always going to have well I'll, I'll give an example like in in the movie 2001 which was like one of my favorite movies as a kid oh god um is it it's still playing yeah it's, it's still a long playing. movie <laughs> i'm waiting for the book hal 9000 is depicted as this you know, it's an AI and it looks like we can now, we're now getting pretty close to being able to build something like that. But one of the funny things about that film is that there, everyone is shocked at the idea that HAL 9000 could make a mistake, right? They're saying like, I've never heard of HAL 9000 ever making a mistake, you know, stuff like that. Because that's the way we think of machines. We think machines are like perfect things. Machines are clearly not perfect. But it is true that neural networks tend to fail in different ways. Like a, a, a normal computer program that's written using code tends to fail catastrophically. Like it'll just be working perfectly and then it'll just completely blow up and crash. Or, you know, it, it's not a graceful type of failure. Whereas the way neural networks make mistakes are very much the way humans do. Like they'll be kind of mostly right, but then a little, a little bit of it is off or a little bit wrong. And that's not the way regular computer programs work. The thing about HAL 9000 is that was wrong in the movie is that 
when you build a system that can operate at the level of HAL 9000, in my opinion, it will have to make mistakes exactly analogous to the way humans do. They will, it will because in order to operate at that level, you, you can't do it exactly. There's no exact solution to intelligence, right? It's always going to be approximate. It's always going to be fuzzy. It's always going to need to explore different avenues, need to be corrected, need to, and that's the way I think intelligence will always work no matter how you build it, whether it's a machine or a brain or something or a, a biological entity or, or an alien or whatever. These things have to make mistakes and they're going to be mistakes of a different type than the type that rule-based systems will, will tend to do, which rule-based systems usually just fail completely. So that's why I, I think that these worlds, I think the analytical world is not a good model of the way reality is. It's to me, rules and those sort of analytical things are just approximate descriptions that we use to try to formalize something, mostly for communication and maybe for reference or something. But they're not the real, they're not the way intelligence works. They're not the way the real world works, in my opinion. I like to tie things back into politics. And and I think, again, this is just my conception, right? Because we, we started drifting into a little bit in terms of like black and white versus gray and fuzzy. I do think it is human nature to divide and label and categorize. I think that tends to be a cross-cultural component of human nature uh, that maybe it manifests differently or looks sort of different in such situations. But I do think just as a survival mechanism, right? It, it's part of our, our wiring. But I, I do have this sort of ongoing theory, and I noticed you had a, a few uh, scrolling back. You have a, a little bit of political stuff on your, on your Twitter feed. But just this whole theory about conservatives versus liberals and how you tend to wind up in, in one or either of those, there you go, divided buckets. But I've, I feel like, or I've, I've feel, again, this is just my perception, you know, conservative people are very, tend to be very black and white. They are, they really attune into that, you know, this is the way things are. And it is very rules-based, right? And whereas I think on the liberal side, left-leaners, everything is much more fuzzy. There's a lot more gray and there's a much more of an acceptance of the gray than there would be on the right. And I, I, sometimes I feel like it's, it's that original sort of whatever shapes or defines that characteristic within us uh, in our formative years, uh, I think has a profound in influence on, on where we tend to wind up on the political spectrum. And obviously you can crisscross or it's possible to crisscross, but it, it seems to be a trait that I think sort of has been borne out pretty well. But in, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I do think that I do think that different cultures do express this somewhat differently. In that, you know, as I was saying, in Asian culture, there's a much more attention to context, and you can actually see uh, this in scientific studies. So, someone did a study where hey, I'll I'll give you a famous example, which is they did a study where they showed a person smiling in the foreground, and then a bunch of angry people behind them, and then they asked Americans is this person happy? And almost all Americans will say, yes, he's happy because he's smiling. And then if you ask Japanese people, they will say, no, he's not happy. And the reason, 
and then when they dug into this, like, why is it that Japanese say this? And this is also, you can do the same thing in other Asian cultures too. It's, it's Asian cultures tend to be at least East Asian, I, I, which is what I'm more familiar with, tend to be very context sensitive. So the Japanese people will say, well, he's not happy because all these people are angry at him. Clearly, seems to be, and uh, and that and for a Japanese person, their emotions, the Japanese think of emotion as actually being in the whole context, all the people, not just themselves, not just their own kind of internal state. So, so there are these cultural differences, but I, I would agree that in every culture, there's a tendency towards more categorical thinking, which tends to be more conservative, and that's true in in Asia as well. And there tends to be more of this uh, shades of gray type of thinking, you know, uh, which is, tends to be more on the progressive side. And although I think it can, it can evolve, I actually think people can evolve, but I, but I do agree with you that it, it does tend to be something that um, is, it's a useful thing, right? As you were saying, it, when you simplify things into categories, then it just reduces your cognitive load, right? You're not having to think so much about, your decisions because they're they're black and white or they're more black and white. The problem with those systems is that when they confront reality, which is not fitting into their categories, then it takes a lot of cognitive load to maintain them, which is why I think conservatives tend to want to impose that on everyone else around them. Because if the world is allowing these shades of gray to exist, then it creates more work for them because they have to then deal with it. They have to think about this, and, it, and, and it's, a, it's a strategy. But one of the really interesting books I read when I was younger was um, M. Scott Peck's A Different Drum. And he's a Christian theologist, or he's more of a thinker of some kind, a philosopher maybe. And he's, he identified what he thought were four levels of spiritual development. That's the way he put it. The first level is chaos like there's no they don't really have any moral sense or whatever they they're just kind of like in, in chaos and a lot of these people end up having a lot of problems they're you know they're, they're going to jail or they become drug addicts or whatever and then he says the next stage is dogmatism i don't know i don't think these are the words he used but he was saying that the dogmatic stage and he says that one of the interesting things is when people transition from that first to the second stage it's usually sudden, like they suddenly become part of some group that has believes all one, you know, one set of th rules that are very, very rigid in black and white. And uh, that's almost always a very sudden, like an overnight change type of thing. And then the third stage, he says, which is higher than the second one in his in his hierarchy, is atheism. <laughs> so it's basically they and it's a gradual change so they slowly start to question the rigidity of their points of view and eventually they just reject the whole thing um that they were in before and then they usually become atheists you know if 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 this if the dogmatism was religious which it usually is in, from his point of view and then the fourth stage is a kind of a nuanced spirituality where the atheist slowly starts to realize that maybe there are some spiritual aspects to the world, but it's not structured in this black and white way. 
And he said that one of the funny things is that if you go to a church, let's say a Christian church, you will find people in the second and fourth stage in the same church, right? And he says that these people don't understand each other. They, like The second stage people don't understand the fourth stage. And the fourth stage understands the second stage, but they, they can't really communicate with the second stage very well. And, but they're sitting next to each other in the same church, right? And I, I think this is an interesting, it's a kind of hopeful in a way, because he, he thinks that you can progress from one stage to the next and kind of get better <laughs> from his point of view. So, so maybe it is something you can, you can evolve. I don't know. Isn't there a significant amount of negativity by inference than the, the, these, the second stage, which is probably the, the, if, if the majority percentage, if not the majority of Americans, right, are, are in that sort of second dogmatic stage. But isn't there an inference by him doing it in that sort of progression evolution that, that obviously the fourth stage is better for you than the, yeah, the I second mean, I, stage? I, he doesn't say it in the book in that clear uh, term, but even calling it the, the more advanced stage or the fourth stage, you know, implies that it's better. And honestly, even though I, 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 I tend to, I don't like good and bad kinds of um, ways of speaking, but, you know, honestly, the fourth stage, I would say, is, you know, you could say is better than the, than the, at least in the second stage. I, I don't know if it's better than the third stage, but it's, it's certainly better than the second stage. No, I'm still in the third stage. I'm agnostic, which just means I'm a cowardly atheist. I want to hit yeah, my I mean, bets. I, I think people in the fourth stage, I would consider myself kind of a fourth stage person, but it's not it's not that I'm not an atheist. I, I just don't think atheism versus non-atheism is, is an interesting question, right? It's not like I think there's a God out there that's controlling things or something like that. There's no reason to posit that, in my opinion. But I, I do think the word God can refer to something real, which isn't necessarily a, an entity floating outside the universe, you know, controlling things. Uh, I think the word God could, could, be, could just refer to, you know, the ground nature of reality, which is uh, unsayable. And if you look at even Christian writers, you know, I, I'm a Buddhist, but when I read like spiritual writings from Christian saints, they, they sound a lot like Buddhists, right? They don't talk about things in a dogmatic way. And they're not really talking about, you know, these rigid categories and so on. So, and their their notion of God is very similar to like a Buddhist notion of what, you know, like in Tibetan Buddhism, they call it Dharmakaya, which just refers to the ground of reality. And it doesn't have, it's not doing things, you know, it's not like it then punished this person or whatever. Like that's not what Dharmakaya is in Buddhism. Um, so you could, some people think Buddhism is, is an atheist religion, but it's not exactly atheist. It's just not, it's you know, like you could be, a, yeah, it's, 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 it's not against the idea of God. Like if you could be a Christian who believes in a traditional notion of God and be a Buddhist also, like they're not going to say, okay, well, you're, you're, you're a heretic. You know, they don't really care about the question. And, and the same would be true for me. Like, I, I'm not against that idea necessarily, but it, I don't have to believe it. So in a lot of ways, my, my, my system of thinking is, is totally compatible with atheism as it's often, but it's also compatible with theism, <laughs> weirdly enough. Well, there's, there's the fuzzy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
So, so we're getting deep. I want to try and be cognizant and respectful of your time. Just a couple of wrap-up sort of questions. Um, I'm not going to ask the whole, what is it like having a, an incredibly unique name that makes you easily searchable on the web? Because that must be, I don't know, interesting in and of itself. There was a few shots of the United Kingdom. You seem to have a little bit of some British tie-in or UK tie-in going on in your life. Yeah, I noticed you did a, a podcast about your fascination with the UK. And so, totally, <laughs> totally. I, I mean, I wouldn't say I have a. a I mean, I, I am very interested. I, I, in general, I'm interested in stuff happening abroad. Like, in, and I spent a lot of time in London because I have some friends there, and I used to visit often before I before I had a child. And you know, our, our travel is a little bit harder to do, but I, I in general, I, I, I actually have spent time looking into British politics too, because yeah, I'm just fascinated by what goes on in other countries. But obviously Britain is, is interesting because it's, you know, the, the progenitor culture of the United States. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that. But I, I did notice you were talking with one of your other guests about the topic of, you know, the fact that Britain doesn't have a, a written constitution. And that's something that I've often thought was interesting. It's kind of relates back to this rule-based thing, right? But the fact that one of the things I think that's interesting about America is that we have this written constitution, and as a result, we're a very legalistic country, right? Compared, which is one way in which we're very different from from the UK, where they do things every everything is is so is so fuzzy, and in a way, I actually think, contrary to what you might think, I actually think ironically that makes them more stable than than us. Because you can't do things by referencing explicit rules, um, because the rules are just unclear. I, I remember when they had a hung parliament election. I think it was Cameron, right? And um, and the the British commentators are going, "Well, we're not really sure what happens next. Perhaps Lord something or the other is going to have to be consulted about the history of situations of this kind. Do we know if someone is consulting the Queen at this moment? We're not really sure. You know, how long is this going to go on? Like nobody really knew what was going to happen. It was like, oh, we're just. And yet, it's funny because there have been hung parliaments before, and yet it's everyone's acting like we have no clue what's going to what's going to happen here. It was it was really pretty funny. But you think that makes them more stable? I do think it makes them more stable, and the reason is they are forced to do things based on common sense. If the, if your whole society would collapse unless you came to some kind of muddle through reasonable <laughs> something that makes some sort of sense, right? Then you're you're not going to go to an extreme, in my opinion. the The problem with the U.S. Um, and our system. I think it's an ironic consequence of the fact that everything is written down, or well, not everything, but we have a lot more written down, right, than in, in the UK or in a lot of societies. I think that the consequence is, and I think you see this working its way through our politics and our even our business world life. If it's not written down, we think, well, then it's okay, right? So any, if we can find some loophole in the rules, people think, okay, well, it's here's the contract, here's the, the law, or here's the whatever, and it's not written down that you can't do this, so we're just going to do it. Even though it completely violates any sense of propriety or... Common sense. Common well, sense. Well, it's not in the Constitution, so... Right, it's not in the Constitution. It doesn't explicitly say we can't 
be horrible people. <laughs> we can't own then, machine guns. Yeah, so then we're just going to do it. And that's the way we tend to think. I think if, if it's not in the rules, then we are just... And, and people do this in business too. They're like, this is why our contracts are so long. We have these huge thick contracts that try to cover every contingency. And then somebody f- finds out, wait a second, they didn't cover this, <laughs> X, whatever it is. So we're just going to screw them over. That's what we often do, right? And I think the societies in which you are not so obsessed with every single contingency. So, you know, like I've read, I don't know if this is really true, but I've read people saying like contracts in England are short. They're much shorter than we we have because people are re- relying on goodwill and common sense. I mean, in, in Japan, they often don't have contracts at all. It's all just people, ta- you know, you have to sort of do things within kind of what's the understood ways that people are supposed to function and it's not based on uh, explicit rules but but it's funny that we're still coming back to that black and white versus fuzzy exactly oh exactly yeah i think there's something to be said for a world in which for the uk approach where it is not explicit and as a result everyone's forced to be fuzzy and so you have to kind of be like okay well I'm just going to be, if I did this, it's, I'm just an ass, right? And so I, I, I'm just going to, I can't really do that. And then that's how they keep their society functioning. And we are just like, well, I can just do it because it's not forbidden by the thing that I signed, you know? You know, this is incredibly helpful because uh, two or three days ago, I, I was in a really sort of long debate uh, with a really good, super intelligent friend who's from the UK, and we were we were discussing the one of the cases that's in front of the Supreme Court right now, where a Christian anti-abortion group had res- reserved a dining space at some restaurant, and uh, when they went in there, they were refused service. And and the I think part of the trickery and the legality of it was, you know, they were a political lobbying group that espoused pro-life positions. And he was just practical about it. He's like, you got to serve them or, you know, you're the manager. You can't fire everybody. And and he was just really looking at it from just sort of a how do I get along or how do I move this forward sort of thing. And And my whole thing was, well, are they a protected class? Are they not a protected class? Are they federally protected? Are they state protected? And I'm like, because you can't. You can't do that. They're if they're a protected class, you you have to serve them. And he's like, or what? You fire everybody? And I'm like, yeah, you fire everybody. And he's like, that's ridiculous. And we were just sort of, <laughs> we were talking at cross purposes because I was so inherently focused on the legality of the situation. He was more about the practical, how does this move forward kind of thing. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know, you know, what's the right answer in this situation, but but it's but I do admire that that British um, tendency. And, you know, it, it, but it's also like, for example, in the U S I, I, it's all, it's actually regional too. For example, in, in uh, this, in the tech industry in the West coast tech industry, contracts tend to be simpler and there's a lot less wrangling over the details of the contract. And I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but, you know, I'm from California and, and we do tend to be less legalistic here for for some reason, 
you know, so, you know, I was like, we were, you know, I was running a startup. I, I had co-founded a startup at one point and we had a law firm. It's one of the top law firms in Silicon Valley. And they would just um, want to do investments with this, op- what they called open source contract. And so they just had, they just published it online and anyone could go use it for early stage deals. And it was just a, a set of very fair, basic common sense, you know, things where both the investor and the uh, company were protected and pretty much because it's partly because of their reputation, but people in the Valley more or less would just be like, okay, we'll just use this right on the East coast. We tried to get a, a, an investor and her lawyer was just like constantly, she, she would put all the, did all this redlining on the contract and like redlining means request for changes. Right. And there are always these outrageous things that they were demanding. Like, in this case, we'll have this. And they're trying to, essentially trying to screw us over. Right? And they kept coming back with this. And it was just going around and around. It just doesn't happen in California. Like, you just, it's just like, here's the contract. It looks sensible. We'll just do it. You don't have to. We still use contracts because we're Americans, you know. But nobody really cares that much. Because you're, there is more of a sense of trust, I guess, that you're just going to follow what makes sense so it doesn't really nobody's trying to gain some kind of weird advantage by tweaking the thing but uh, east coast contract negotiations are so fraught maybe we're assuming good faith and they're assuming not good faith maybe but i think in general like if you're talking about how a society should run and this is the only sort of pushback i'll give in terms of how society should be run that fuzzy sort of practical way the, the the simple way seems to be much better. I think what I get scared about is the fuzziness when it relates to power and an asynchronous sort of relationship. Asymmetrical, yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm a network guy. Um, <laughs> an asymmetrical relationship. So like in the case of the UK and, and you know, Boris, when he was sort of at his, his peak frenzy, you know, that fuzziness allows for the abuses if those norms aren't followed. And if if you're relying on peer pressure or social constructs or, you know, that's just the way it's done kind of stuff, it that tends to fall apart pretty quickly when you run into someone who just does not at all care and isn't punished for not caring. And I think that's where our more structured legalistic, so maybe it's just government needs to be Legalistic. No, and- I, I, I don't think that it's, it, it, you know, as is typical of me, I, I, I don't think it's uh, one is better than the other is is a way a way I would phrase it. I would say that they're they're both they both have their pros and cons. You know, so for example, like you were saying, minorities are better protected by more explicit rules because they don't fit in to the social norms and and pe- they can be abused, and that's you know. Asia also tends to be more fuzzy, you know, in, in general, as I was saying. And the downside is it is more difficult if, you, if you're not part of the mainstream, you know, and they, they do tend to discriminate more. And they don't really have a notion of that there should be rules that protect everyone. And it, it's a problem. It's definitely a problem. It's, it's a downside. You can have more diversity. So to some extent, I think the legalism is partly due to our history in the U.S., you know, from the Constitution being so 
fully specified and so on. But it, I think it's also because we have we are a nation of immigrants, and you kind of need more protections. Um, they they come out of out of bad experiences, right? The, these legalistic things, but but it can go too far too. Like it, like in you know, I lived in New York for like fourteen years, and I bought a house and I sold a house and uh, or a condo, a loft, and the process was so so involved, right? And you, both sides have to have lawyers, right? You, each side has to have its own, their own lawyer, and you all have to meet in person. And then the thing takes like three hours to close, and it takes months and months to finalize these things. So, to some extent, that's because so many people have been screwed over, I guess, in these real estate transactions that they evolved this elaborate system, which is probably overdone, right? At this point. Right? It just takes way too much time and, and so on. So, yeah, I agree that in the face of especially minorities and, and groups that are not part of the mainstream, that having more explicit rules can be much more protective of them and it can enable more fair interactions between people. But at the same time, the excess of legalism sometimes evolves to the point where it's just not functional anymore, or it's, it's much less functional. It's not actually pro providing that much protection to people. And it's just creating a lot of additional problems. And then those same black and white kind of laws can actually be used against, also can be used against. And then, then it becomes a, a fight over, let's construct the rules so that we can now screw over, you know, like in, like in Florida, right? Like they're, they're now saying that you can't talk about being gay and so on in the schools, and that is a, a law that is now constraining, you know, it's now being used against the minorities, right? So, so it is, uh, it can be used in the other way. Like, part of the thing that I think I like about living in California is that we are both less legalistic, but we also have a, a culture of inclusiveness to some extent. And there is social shaming around not being inclusive, right? So that's partly how we do that. It's not just through uh, laws, it's actually through uh, a social understanding, which, which is something that's kind of permeated most of the state. Uh, and I see that as, as an advantage. And I think that in some ways, that's a stronger way to, to, to kind of make those things more likely to, to uh, benefit people than just having the laws, you know? On, uh, Mitzi, I, honestly, I think I could sit and talk to you for for hours and hours and hours, but I, I super appreciate all the time you've given, and I, I don't want to take up any more of it. Plus, I think there may be a soccer match coming up here that's relevant. Just to wrap it up, what we like to do at the end of these is we we try and let our guests uh, recommend a piece of media um, that they think the audience might enjoy that they may not know of, whether it's TV, film, books, or anything. Do you have? Is there anything out there that you podcasts? Uh, is there anything out there that you might recommend to the listeners? You know, I, I, I wish I could come up with a, a good example that is related to what we've been talking about in depth, but I, I'll just talk about a couple films that happen to be, one is from uh, Japan and one is from Korea. So there's a, a Japanese film called Shoplifters, and it is kind of similar to Parasite that came out uh, from Korea, 
uh, but it's about a family that is kind of living on the edge of society and they are not related by blood but they're kind of related by familial bonds and they survive partly by shoplifting but it's one of the most beautiful films i've i've ever seen and it's um it's really worth seeing as a japanese film and i also would like to recommend the korean director hong sang su who is very controversial because he ended up having an affair with one of his actresses uh who who he's featured in a lot of his films and that became a huge scandal so now he's persona non grata in korea because he's broken the norms but his films are are he's kind of like the ingmar bergman of korea in my opinion and a lot of his films are are really wonderful that some of them are hard to get it's hard to get them except on like dvd or something like that you can see his films in the theater uh, however, there's one that, in fact, my wife and I are going to see today, where uh, which is out now. But uh, but I recommend checking out Hong Sang Su, uh, and a lot of his films are are really great. Ingmar Bergman was the Seventh Seal guy. Yes, yes, the Seventh okay. Seal. So if you like the Seventh Seal, you'll like this director. I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know if this, their films are that that similar, but Bergman is is one of the most uh, is also an amazing director, of course. And and just because so much of my audience is American, um, brace for subtitles. Yeah. Yes, I would. I would recommend. I, I don't know if these films are even dubbed. They're probably not. So I uh, hate dubbing. I can't watch. I can't watch dub films. Yeah, it's it's worth it's worth seeing them um, in with subtitles because you get the the actor's nuances. Awesome, Mitsu. Uh, thank you so much for the time. Um, great conversation. It's always fun uh, learning about stuff that is, is beyond my normal circle. And so I'm, I'm greatly appreciative. So thank you very much for taking the time. It's been great. Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Thank you for listening. Catch us on Spotify and iTunes and at tiltatwindmills.com.